Good morning and welcome to Redemption. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are here with us or if you're watching online, you're with us this morning. Uh, I want to just give a real quick shout out to uh, everyone who participated or helped make uh, the heat stroke open. So we had a, a, we had a golf tournament for youth uh, to raise uh, camp scholarship money, and we raised about $9,000, which was incredible. So if you participated in that and you were a part of that, thank you. We also lost about 9,000 golf balls, so it was... It was, a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It, it, it means a lot to me personally just because I was a kid who grew up uh, needing a scholarship to be able to go to camp, and it was at one of those camps that I met Jesus. And so I'm just very thankful for those who were so generous to participate in that and to provide for, uh, for the next generation of kids to be able to go and uh, hear how much God loves them. And, and I'm honestly just overall just struck with the generosity of this church. I mean, Matt in that video is just talking about financial difficulties and the reality is things are just more expensive in the world, but you this year and last year and uh, have just really been so faithful to what God is doing in and through this church, through your giving and uh, through helping with things like Convoy of Hope and all of our other international partners in Alaska and all the stuff that's happening here in the community, in the, in the city, in the town. So I just am so thankful to be a part of a church that's so generous uh, and just trust God uh, in what he's doing around us. So we are going to continue our series in 2 Samuel. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, we're going to put the text on the screen. But we always encourage you to either try to get a hard copy of the Bible, or uh, you can get it uh, on your smart device or on a phone. Uh, Something like the Bible app is really great. Version has a great Bible app that you can use. Um, so 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we are. When I was a kid, uh, I liked to play with fire. And that's not just an expression. Um, I played with actual fire. So I don't know if that's a thing that kids are still doing with all your Playstations and your internets and stuff, but I played with matches. And fire can be a really useful thing. It can be a very good thing. Uh, It can provide light in the heat, or excuse me, light in dark and and heat in the cold. Um, Or it can burn down their parents' garage in the middle of the night like I did when I was 11 years old. Um, Yeah, so my parents are watching this, so that's, they're excited to hear that again. Um, What we're going to see in the text this morning is that our desires or our appetites um, can take the same kind of course in our lives. A desire or an appetite for something good that is fulfilled outside of proper laws or guidelines or guardrails can lead to disaster, not just for you personally, but for those around you as well. Uh, An appetite for success or approval or pleasure or relationship not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but we can quickly get evil with them. And we've all heard stories, or maybe we even have stories, of how opportunities or relationships or dreams have gone up in flames because we didn't heed the boundaries or the laws about our appetites or about our desires because we didn't flee the temptation to fill them in a way apart from God's design. That's where we're going to find David this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, who really up to this point has been a picture of covenantal faithfulness to God. He's kind of done it all right, but we're going to look at an event in his life where he is going to show us how to burn your house down. So welcome to church. Let's pray and ask God just to help us this morning. Father, 
Uh, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the way that you speak to us. God, I'm so thankful for the way that your word carries with it warnings, like what we're going to see in David's life this morning. Um, God, I'm so thankful that your word is a reminder of your, of your kindness. And God, I, I pray that as we look at David's life and as we look at the story, yes, we do pay attention to the warning that it provides, but God, we also see in this story an experience in our own story from you, God, hope and healing and restoration, because you're a God of grace and a God of love and a God of forgiveness and a God of mercy. And so, God, I pray that all those things come through this morning. And God, uh, we need you for that. That doesn't just depend on uh, me or any kind of ability or skill that I might have, God. It is a work of your spirit. God, something supernatural has to happen outside of us. And so, God, I just pray that your spirit would come. Holy Spirit, would you come in this place and would you be in our midst? God, would we experience your presence? God, would we experience your power to transform and change and heal us today? All so that you are made much of, Jesus, and all so that we love you more. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning uh, just by saying that it is not my goal to shame anyone in the hearing of the story. Uh, sometimes we can sit through messages like this and it kind of feels like whoever's preaching might just be trying to make us all just feel really bad about what we've done. That's not the intention. That's not the goal of this text or of this message at all because there is a beautiful grace-filled gospel message in this story but the reality is it carries with it very painful consequences for David, and we have to look intently at that. We can't shy away from that because there are painful consequences to my sin and my story and to yours and yours. So hang in there to hear the hope in the end. And my, re my real desire is that we would take the path of wisdom that's provided for us here in this passage and here in David's story that we would see what happened to David and that he would, in essence, kind of pay the tax for us so that we would not have to enter into the same calamity that David does. Now, where we've been uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, really through 10, uh, is kind of like a highlight reel of David doing all the things the right way. God promised in the person of David that he would be a hero who protects his people and who leads with kindness. And we've seen kind of victory after victory that the Lord has won through and in David. Uh, he stops the Philistines, the Moabites, the Assyrians, the Edomites. It's victory after victory. Victory, the Lord is with David is a particular refrain in this section. And last week, even we saw him extend hesed or that kindness, that loyal love to the family of Saul, who was the king who reigned before David, the very king who pursued David and tried to kill him. And David uh, pursues people in Saul's life, uh, particularly Mephibosheth, with real kindness. But as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is where you should be in the scriptures, the narrative really slows down because the narrator wants to see this very critical moment in David's story. Look at verse 1, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. 
And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So David's calling as a king was to protect his people from enemies. And now the weather is good in the spring, and so the Hebrew armies go out and they attack this walled city of Rabbah. They besiege the city. But if you notice what's written here, it it says at, at the time when kings go out to war. So David is a king who should be going out to war. But the, the text says that David sent others, and he stayed, and he sat in place. So if you want to know how to burn down your house, the first thing is to be in the wrong environment, to stay in the wrong place. That's what we see here with David. The Hebrew scholar Robert Alter He notices that the verb to send happens 11 times in this passage. David stays in his house the whole time, and he sends others to do things. The scholar says he has endowed himself with a dangerous amount of leisure. This chapter here should be another one of the chapters where we're seeing more victories for David, but instead, it's going to be one of the most tragic moments of his life because he started off by staying in the wrong place. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. It's like an outline for an entire sermon right there in one verse. To step I walk, who am I in step with, or what am I in step with? To stand, where do I stand and linger, sit, where do I stay and position myself? Because for most of us, sin starts small, starts with a small decision, a small compromise, a single match, a tiny flame. It starts with a single relationship with a person or a substance or an idea that's not healthy for us or that goes against God's prescribed way of living. Sin starts small, and this passage in Psalms gives us the warnings along the way. Who are you walking with, or what are you walking with, or who are you in step with? What are you, who are you standing or sitting with? What places do you constantly find yourself that end in shame and regret and sin? And David hasn't sinned yet in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, but he's allowed an appetite for convenience to place him in harm's way. Look at verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So the text says that late in one afternoon, David gets up. Now, it was common to take naps in the afternoon or kind of like a siesta. It was very hot and there. But David wakes up when the sun's going down. So what the narrator's trying to tell us is that David has been in bed for a long time. So David, one, is in the wrong place because he stayed, and now he's making a bad use of his time. One pastor talking about this text said that David's laziness leads to lust. And you've probably noticed, I notice that this is true for me, but that when you're tired, when you're exhausted, you're just more susceptible to temptation. You're more susceptible to kind of let things into your field of vision. You're You're more susceptible to letting things into your life that if you weren't as exhausted or you weren't as lazy or as apathetic, you'd have more of a fight against those things. 
What David is teaching us here just in this verse is that whatever you put in front of you is what you, per, what you pursue. So what do you put in front of you? What do you consistently put in front of your eyes? What do you consistently put in front of you that leads to your pursuit of those things? Because David should have been at war, but here he is at home in his pajamas lingering in laziness. And when you're tired and the right opportunity presents to do the wrong thing, the result is failure. Now, it's important to note here because there's a common misconception, and sometimes that this is either taught or inferred, that this woman is actually on her roof bathing wide out in the open, but that's not what the text says. The text says that David is on his roof, and his house would have been the highest or the tallest house in the city, and he would have had a view down into the other homes. And it's most likely that this woman is bathing in like a garden courtyard, kind of like a patio part, or maybe in what would be like a bathroom, but there would have been a window open because of the, just the heat of the day. So David, has the, the view into wherever she is that she's, uh, that she's bathing. So there's no indication from the text that she's deliberately placed herself in a, a way to entice David. So in this moment, David is not necessarily malicious, but he is certainly careless. He sees her, but his real problem starts in verse 3. Look at verse 3. <laughs> And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. In this moment, David allows his curiosity to rule him and not his conscience. David is pulled by his curiosity and not guided by his conscience. Sin, particularly sexual sin, often starts with curiosity, and curiosity is not in and of itself a bad thing because curiosity in a healthy way can lead to innovation. But the enemy will often twist and distort our curiosity. So the key here is to pay attention to what gets your attention. Pay attention to what gets your attention. The things that you watch, the things that you look at, the things on your phone, the things that you even listen to, pay attention to what gets your attention. And if it's not healthy or if, it's not, if it is against God's design, reroute that curiosity to something positive. Because for many of us, our pet sins or our habits or the things that are unhealthy in our life, they start this way. The destruction in our lives starts with a distortion of our curiosity. Now, what's really interesting here is that the servant is actually trying to help David out because when he introduces uh, who she is, he gives the full name of the father and of her husband. Now, this is not normal in that Hebrew culture, particularly for someone who's relatively common. There's no reason for him to say, oh, that's uh, Iliam's daughter, Uriah's wife. But what the servant's trying to do here is saying, listen, you know who she is. You know who these men are. Iliam was one of David's warriors, and he was a trusted counselor. Uriah was uh, one of David's 30 mighty men. So he was kind of like in the special forces. And so he's saying, listen, you're familiar with who these men are. He's trying to make it personal. He's saying, David, 
don't depersonalize her. Don't dehumanize her and just treat her like an object for your lust. She's a real person with names and parents and loved ones and stories and futures and families. And it's providing for us a good warning because we should have accountability in our life. It's important to have people who are going to speak truth into your life, who people are going to interrupt patterns, the people who are going to step in when they know that you are out of step. And it's one thing to have those types of people, but it's a whole other thing to submit to that accountability, to listen to them. And what we're going to see, sadly, is that David's descent actually starts to pick up steam here. He wakes up late. He's lingered at the palace. He's walking around. He sees. He sends. He gets the warning back. He gets the information back. The small flame is about to turn into a forest fire. Look at verse 4. It says this, Then David sent messengers to get her. So he's already sent to inquire, and now he's sending to get her. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home, and the woman, the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. He sends for her. She comes over. He sleeps with her. She leaves. She's pregnant. David kind of lingered for a moment, but the sin happens quickly. And the longer that we linger in temptation, the more easily sin will manifest in our lives because the place to fight the battle is on the onset, not just in the moment. James, who's the brother of Jesus, writes about this cycle, and he says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So he's talking about the process here. He says, you're starting to get dragged away when you're enticed, when there's something that you see. David sees on the roof. After he's already in the wrong place, he stayed where he shouldn't have stayed, and now he's seeing what he shouldn't be seeing, and then he sends for what he shouldn't send for. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. What James is saying is there, we try so often to fight or to flee sin in the delivery room of death. And James is like, don't even go on the first date with temptation. If you don't want to burn down your house, don't mess with the matches. Because often we can control what we allow into our life, the inputs. But if you don't, you can't always control what comes out of it the outcomes. David's little compromises lead to big consequences. We don't have time to go all the way back through David's story, but if you will kind of track back through David's story, David's been kind of like accruing women, multiple wives, concubines. And you read through that and you're like, that just really doesn't seem right. And the fact is it's not right. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God that Moses wrote down generations ago says, warn your kings, do not multiply wives because your heart will be led astray. What he's talking about is that the different appetites that you have, they they grow. I know this text is predominantly around this kind of sexual sin, but it's not just that. It's really in all things. You've experienced this. You can't just give a little bit to your kind of pet sin and just think that's going to satisfy it. 
If I just give it just that little bit, then it's going to go away. If I just kind of give some space to satiate my appetite, to just have a little release, to have a little oasis, things don't become smaller. They grow. And we will try to justify, like, well, you don't understand how stressful my job is. You don't understand how ununderstanding my spouse is. You don't understand the stress I'm under, the anxiety I'm under. You don't, my parents don't get it. You don't understand. It's this. And so we make all these excuses that why we can feed these little pet sins, and then they just grow and grow and grow and grow. The little decisions along the way that lead to bigger consequences. And when your appetites involve using other people, you dehumanize them and you steal from them the dignity that God has placed on them. In verse 4, it's very interesting because the way that the narrator tells the story, the, the, the story doesn't include love and care and kindness and compassion or even romance. It doesn't include her name. She is depersonalized. Verse 4 never says Bathsheba, never uses her name, just says her and she, because sin steals your personness. It steals your God-given dignity. It dehumanizes you and turns you and others that you use into objects. This is sadly the sexual ethic of our culture and of our day that I can just use people like the same way that I would use a rental car. What, if you've ever been in a rental car with me, you know exactly what I'm talking about because I drive it like a crazy person. I don't care. I don't care. I drive it as fast as I want. I drive wild as I want. I let my kids eat in it. Eat, what do you want? You want to eat? It's fine. You want to dump the bag of French fries over? I don't care. It's not my car. I roll all the windows down and turn the air on full blast. Doesn't matter. I'm just going to use it any way that I want because I don't have any kind of covenantal commitment to this vehicle. In fact, I start the relationship understanding this has a termination point. If I don't like how this car works, I can trade it in. I can get a newer model. It doesn't matter. I'm going to drive it however I want. And the second it doesn't perform or do how I want it to, I'll just trade it in. I'll just walk away from it. I have no commitment. And when we engage with people sexually outside of God's intention and design and covenant of marriage, we treat the apex of God's creation like it's a disposable rental car. And our culture doesn't just allow for that, it actually celebrates that. And the twisted thing is, it celebrates that until it doesn't. It baits you into thinking that that is celebrated until you actually act like that, and then it turns on you and shames you. David just uses her. He misuses his power against her. And, and, I, and sadly, a lot of times, when we look at a story like this, we're often 
kind of too quick to interject, well, you know, it does take two to tango. I mean, she was there. There are two sides of the story, and I understand that there might be a level of truth to that, but the narrative here is told in such a way for us to see that Bathsheba and in a moment her husband Uriah are the victims and David is the victimizer. David has wronged her, and now she's pregnant. Proverbs chapter 6 says this, can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? The Bible is so brilliantly written, this picture. And then he says in verse 29, so it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Can you, can you hold fire in your lap? not get burned. When the fireman did show up to my house after I'd burned the garage, they pulled me out of there. And my arms, my, I was extremely fortunate. My arms were not burnt, but they were covered in black soot. I mean, my arms were as black as my shirt is now. Because you can't mess with fire and not have it affect you. That's what the Proverbs is saying here. You can't Hold a flame in your lap and not burn up all your clothes. In the Bible, the fool is the one who thinks that what they do today will have no effect on their future. When we think fool, we think that person is a fool. They just do a lot of dumb things. But that's not what the Bible, how the Bible describes a fool. The Bible describes a fool as the person who makes, who does something today thinking it has no bearing on my future. I can spend however I want and it's not going to have any bearing on my future. I can treat people however I want and it will have no bearing on my future. I can do, I can say, I can act however I want today. Day, and it has no effect on my future. David thinks, this is just one night of passion. This is just one beautiful woman I saw. It was just something that I wanted. And so it just happened just this one time. But he doesn't consider the outcomes of his sin. So now David's at a really critical moment here in the story because he has to respond. And so let's see how he responds to what happens here. Verse 6 So David sent this word to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Uh, Very interesting. The way that you ask uh, how someone's doing in Hebrew is uh, through the word shalom. Shalom is a word that means peace. It's It's a greeting. It's talking about wholeness, peace, peace to you. And so David is, in essence, asking, how's the shalom? How is the peace? How's the wholeness? And he is the one who is tearing the shalom apart for Bathsheba and Uriah and even himself. And what's really odd here is that David sends for a Navy SEAL to run messages back and forth. They had messengers who would do this, but yet David has brought in a special forces warrior just to see how things are going. It's very odd. Look at verse 8. So he brings Uriah in. Then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Wash your feet is, a, is an expression. It's actually a euphemism, and the idea is that, listen, you've been gone a long time. You go home. You've been wearing sandals. Your feet are all dirty. Your wife hasn't seen you in a long time. So you're going to start washing your feet. Washing your feet is going to lead one thing to the other. There's going to be some marital intimacy there. Okay, it's 
Apparently not the same thing that happens in our culture today, but there, this was a big deal. Wife starts washing your feet, next thing you know. And then he says, even to kind of sweeten the deal, he's like, I'm going to put a little gift basket together for you. Maybe some chocolate, some rosé in there, maybe an Usher CD, right? <laughs> Usher is this artist, kids, a long time ago, <laughs> but anyway. So this is David's plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to cover up the fire that I started. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to the house. This is what David was not ready for because Uriah is a man who has more integrity and more honor and is far more loyal than David is. You see, in that day when a soldier went to war, they would abstain from sexual intimacy. It was an act of ritual purity. It was a way that they would be consecrated or set apart to the Lord so that God would bless them and be with them in battle. It was also a way for Uriah to show solidarity to his brothers who were still on the battlefield that were also abstaining. So Uriah won't do it, and it bothers David. Because when you're in sin, the most annoying people to have around are the people who have integrity. And so David has to step it up. Verse 10, David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, have you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Some scholars say that what's embedded in that question is that David's kind of goading Uriah. He's actually questioning his manhood. Like, hey, man, aren't you a man? You've been gone for a long time. How come you didn't go home to your wife? But Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he didn't go home. So David's like, listen, I know what I got to do. I just have to get this dude drunk. And if I do that, then he will compromise his commitments. But the problem is it doesn't work because sin is doing what sin always does. It compounds, especially when it's concealed. And now David has not just done a thing. He has to lie about the thing and try to cover it up. And so it's getting more and more irrational and more and more ridiculous. The fire that I started in my parents' garage, I was in the middle of the night and I was so freaked out, I didn't know what to do. So I started to sneak into the house and I was grabbing like my mom's giant spaghetti pots and filling them with water. And then I would try to sneak back into the house and just throw a pot of water on this raging fire inside the garage. It was ridiculous. It was irrational trying to conceal a fire that was compounding and growing and growing and growing and getting out of control. And David is running out of options. Somebody has to suffer for David's actions. And David's selfishness, which was a hallmark of Saul's kingdom, won't allow him to be the one who has to suffer for it. So listen to what happens here. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. 
So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Here's what's happened, and I'll just quickly kind of walk, walk through this. David sends Uriah back to the front lines with his own death sentence in his hand. David says, tell Joab, send everybody to the front to the wall. David knew this tactic would get men killed. And he was hoping that it would also get Uriah killed, and it does. And so the messenger comes back and he said, we've suffered great loss. Uriah was one of those who died. And David at first is like, why did you employ that tactic? Even though he's the one who told them this is what you're supposed to do. And then the messenger says, well, you need to know also that Uriah died. And then it says, and, and later on in that chapter, David says to the messenger, he's like, you know what? The sword just devours in war. This is just what happens. In essence, war is hell. People die in war. Don't let it get you down. Keep fighting. Keep on the attack. And then after that, David takes Bathsheba to be his own wife, which was kind of a common practice. If a wife, uh, if a husband was killed, uh, there would be like a redeemer type person who would take that wife to be uh, her husband and the father of his child. So it's messy, but David thinks, look, my problems are solved. And if that's just where the story stopped, wouldn't that just feel like how the world works sometimes? The ones with all the power get to do whatever they want. Here's this king. He just makes things work out for him. But that's not how the story ends. In fact, at the end of verse 27, it says this. In chapter 11, verse 27, it says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God is not happy. We get to 2 Samuel. Um, Kathy read this earlier, so I'm not going to go into this again, but there's this prophet Nathan. He shows up to David, and he tells him the story. There's a man who's got multiple lambs, and then there's one who has just a, a one baby ewe lamb, and it's like his daughter who lays in his arms. Uh, and the Hebrew there is very particular because daughter is a word bat, Shabbat is to lay in your arms. And so Nathan is telling the story in a way where David will connect the bat Shabbat with sounds like Bathsheba. He's trying to ring some bells for David. David is furious, like you heard Kathy Rattel. In fact, he gives a judgment. He's like, there's a beginning fourfold. You have to pay it back. And Nathan leans in and he looks at David square in the eye and says, it's you. You are that man. And then I'll read the story, pick up in verse eight. This is what Nathan says to David. This is from, this is the word of the Lord to David. I gave, you, I gave your master's house to you 
and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. The thing you did in secret is going to happen to you in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Nathan is speaking for God who says, David, there is no wiggle room. Because I gave you position, I gave you protection, I gave you possessions, I gave you prestige, I gave you power. And God says, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. But see, this is the lie of sin, and this is the lie of Satan from the beginning, is that God is holding out on you. So when you are tempted, that is beneath every temptation, that God is holding out on you, that there is more for you to be satisfied and fulfilled, but you have to make it happen on your own. You have to make it happen outside of God's ways and outside of God's word because corruption begins where contentment ends. Our corruption begins where our contentment ends. Gratitude is one of our best and biggest weapons in our fight against temptation. You fight temptation with thanksgiving. When we are bitter and we are upset at what we don't have, we are more susceptible to temptation. It's why James again says, why are, you, why are there wars? Why are there quarrels? Why is there fighting even amongst you and even inside of you? It's because what you want, you don't have. And so you fight and you rage. But David here has become entitled and entangled. And Nathan points out to David, your sin is against God. And God sides with the innocent and God sides with the oppressed. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. But God says, you sinned against me. And I stand with the Bathshebas and I stand with the Uriahs of the world. I am on their side. And you despised my word. And he doesn't let David wiggle out of it. He's like, you use the sword, and now the sword is coming from you. Next week is just heartbreaking what we're going to see in David's story. There's consequences to your sin, David. The little flame is burning your house down. And again, this message is not meant to shame or guilt anyone who has regrets here this morning because there's grace in the story, I promise you. But the enemy wants to convince us that our sin is small. It's just one match. It won't hurt anyone. It won't impact anything. So you just do you and you just get yours. David says in verse 13, and this is kind of the turning point of the story. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what I've done. Later on in the story, we don't have time to get into it right now. Nathan comes to him and says, the baby that Bathsheba has will die. And David mourns over it. The baby dies. And what we are learning is that the consequences and the mess of our, of our sin, it needs a savior. It needs a hero better than any hero that we could present. David was supposed to be the best hero that we could put forward. And he's committing adultery and he's murdering people. 
because there has to be someone who pays for the the, takes the punishment and takes the penalty for the sin. The Apostle Paul even wrestles with this in the book of Romans. He's like, how could all these sins go unpunished? How could all these things happen? Because Jesus would take the punishment and Jesus would take the penalty of it all. All the debt that was due us would be put on him. All the fires that we started consumed him so that our sin wouldn't lead to our crushing and so that God could bring justice and at the same time be the justifier that every sin would be paid for either in hell or on the cross of Christ. The story ends with another son being born to David and Bathsheba. And this son is named Solomon. And Solomon is a name that comes from the word for peace. And so if you're sitting there and you're sitting in the wreck and the ruin of a story, uh, maybe just like David's, but maybe not, but still having consequences. And you're wondering, can there be peace in my life after devastating sin? And the answer is yes. And what's so interesting is that God puts grace on this child, Solomon, and he says, his name is Solomon, which means peace. And yes, that's true. But God says, I'm going to go one more. I'm going to call him Jedidiah, which means that he is the Lord's beloved. And that is the name that God sings over you today if you are his. In spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your failure, because of what his beloved son has done on your behalf, he says, you are my beloved. Your sin has been paid for, your shame has been buried, and you don't carry it anymore because it's been carried to the cross. So David's story carries for us a warning for sure, but there is a warming of our hearts by the grace and the love and the embrace of the Father because of what the Son has done. And David's story is a reminder that our failure isn't fatal. And whatever dream and whatever hope has been put to death because of sin, God is able to resurrect and to repay. We're going to enter into a time of communion. The band's going to come up now. We do this every week here um, where we take the bread and we take the cup and we are reminded of the grace of God in our lives. I want to just real quick tell a, a, a quick gospel story just to kind of get us ready for this moment. It's one of my favorite stories. I probably tell it too much, to be honest. Um, but in Luke chapter 15, there's a moment where Jesus is telling a, a series of stories. He's telling a series of parables. And Luke tells us in his gospel uh, about the audience that's there. And he says the audience that's there gathered around to hear Jesus tell these stories and these parables. There's tax collectors, which was kind of like the scourge of the society there. These are people who stole from their own people and, and extorted people. Uh, and then he just kind of throws this blanket phrase. He's like, there's just a whole kind of conglomerate of sinners out there. So the worst of the worst is there. And he's like, and then on a fringe, the people listen to Jesus tell the story are the Pharisees, these kind of religious leaders. And Jesus t starts in on this story. And he says, there's a, there's a young man who goes to his father. And he says something that is just audacious, outlandish, scandalous, and highly offensive. He says to his father, he's like, I want my inheritance. Everything that's due me, I want that now. What he is saying in essence to his father is like, I want everything that I will get from you when you're dead. Well, you don't get an inheritance until your dad is dead. And he's like, let's just pretend and let's live and let's act like you're dead. You're dead. Give me what's coming to me. And the father actually does it. He actually gives the son his inheritance. 
And so the boy takes off. He's got a pocket full of cash, and he heads out for the city, and the party is on. The scripture describes it as wild living, reckless living, and he goes crazy. And the party is on, and the friends are there, and it is a great time until the money runs out, until the friends are ghosts. A famine hits the land, and he's broke and broken. And this Jewish boy has to go get a job because he's got to eat. And so he gets a job feeding pigs, Hebrew boy feeding pigs. And there's a moment where the boy is in the slop and in the mess, and he's looking at what the pigs are eating, and he's like, that looks so good to me. And the scripture says, as Jesus is telling the story, that the boy came to his senses. There's a moment of grace that intersects with his messy life. And for some of you this morning, there could be the very same moment of grace that as you're hearing David's story and you're hearing the story even now that I'm telling, that God, by the power of his spirit, could be intersecting with your life to wake you up, to wake you up out of the mess, to wake you up out of the hiding, to wake you up out of the concealing, to wake you up out of the sin, to wake you up out of the rebellion, to just to, to wake you up to who he is. So he has this moment where he comes to his senses and he rehearses the speech and he thinks, I left as a son, but I could go back as a servant because my, the, my dad's servants live better than how I'm living now. And so he starts to kind of make up this speech about, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven, which is true. He sinned against his dad and all sin is a sin against God and a sin against heaven. And so he starts back home and the whole time he's rehearsing the speech and he's got this whole kind of thing that he's going to say to his dad just to convince his dad to allow him to be a servant in his household. And he's a mess and he's walking home. And the scripture says that as the boy is walking home, the father the whole time has just been waiting. And he sees his son on the horizon and he does something that no respectable father would ever do, especially a father who's been offended the way that he has. He hikes up his robe and he tears down the driveway and the son is thinking, okay, here comes my dad. He's going to be furious. He's going to punish me. I have to take it, but I'm going to give him the speech and I'm going to tell him just how sorry I am and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And as the father approaches the boy, the boy starts in, he says, Father, I have, and he can't even get it out because the father embraces him and he's weeping over him and you don't get to even hear the speech. I don't even get to hear what the son is going to say and the father doesn't care. He doesn't have time for it. It's not what he's there for. He's there to tell the son that he loves him. He's there to tell everyone around that the party is on. Get the best meal together. Get my best robes. Get my best rings and jewelry. Restore to him everything that was lost and more. Because my son, who I thought was dead, is alive. I thought he was lost forever. He's been found. He's a mess. But now he's home with me. It's an amazing story. It's a beautiful story. And the most 
beautiful person in the story and the most amazing person in the story is the person who's actually telling the story. A lot of times we miss him. But Jesus is here on planet Earth telling a group of people what they can expect when they come home to God. Jesus is telling us what we can expect after we've made a complete mess of everything. And what is so amazing is that Jesus is telling the story of what we can expect to get from God when we come home, knowing full well that he is the one who will pay for all of the reckless and wild and foolish living that you have done and that I have done and that they have done. Jesus doesn't just tell the story as like a feel-good story for everyone. It carries massive weight to it, a massive weight that will be placed on him at his cross so that that story could be true, so that story is not just a parable, so that story is not just a fiction to make us feel better when we leave. That story is the most beautiful story in the world because of what he did to make it true. That's why we celebrate communion here every week. The bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. They're simple elements, but they represent the most beautiful thing that we've ever known about. They represent the most beautiful reality that's here, that's available today because they represent Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today, This is what we remember at the table. I was lost, now I'm found. I was dead, I've been made alive because of the complete and finished work of Jesus. And so if your trust is in him and what he has done alone, eat and drink in remembrance of him.